0: All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey, it's Luke. Listen, before we get to this week's episode, I need to ask you a very quick favor. Can you believe we have been producing Livewire for 11 years and we've been able to share work from emerging artists, people like Tomo Nakayama and Sarah Benincasa, and also through Livewire we've been able to showcase established artists, people who already are pretty well-known, folks like John Roderick, folks like Fred Armisen. This podcast, while it's free, for you at this moment, as you're, if you paid somebody for this podcast, you got hustled. This is supposed to be free, what you're hearing right now. But it does cost us money to put it together. And so we are hoping, and this is where the favor comes in, that you can help us keep producing this podcast and keep making it something that is, in fact, free of charge. And this is how you can do that. If you could chip in $10 through our Give Guide campaign, that would be so great. That's like $0.40 cents per episode, which is about a tenth of a latte. Because this is public radio, we have to use a latte as our mathematical unit for just about everything. Here's how you can do this. There is a website, giveguide.org slash hashtag livewire. If we raise enough money this year, we won't have to have such a shitty web address next time. That's giveguide.org. That part's great. It's the slash hashtag livewire that I think may be challenging, but we're going to ask you to take on the challenge. Again, that address, giveguide.org slash hashtag live wire radio thank you so much for listening to our show and thank you for supporting live wire hey it's luke burbank this is live wire radio we're backstage at the alberta rose theater in portland oregon we got an amazing show for you coming up dan pashman from the Sporkful is here plus we've got music from tomo nakayama and we've got this woman D. Williams, who is well known for building and living in an 84-square-foot house. Dee, the show that we're doing is about the devil being in the details. What's a detail you wish you would have known before you started building your 84-square-foot house?
3: Probably one of the biggest ones was like, don't use your head as a cinder block. One day I used my head uh, to hold this plywood in place and I glued... I glued my hair to the house. It's still in the house, actually. I yelled until a neighbor showed up with a pair of scissors.
0: You are describing, by the way, the exact feeling a lot of guests have on this show, of just being hopelessly trapped.
3: Exactly. I feel that way right now.
0: Speaking of the show, how about we head out there on the stage and do this episode of Livewire?
1: From PRI, Public Radio International, it's... Yes, it's Live Wire Radio from the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, with sportful podcast host Dan Hashman, tiny house builder Dee Williams, and music from Tomo Nakayama. All that, plus comedy from our troupe, The David and Flick Experience, and music from our house band, led by Mr. Ralph Huntley. And now, the host of Live Wire, the man known in the dark reaches of Yuma, Arizona, as El Diablo de Burma Luke Burbank.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you, Jason Rouse. Thank you everybody for being here at the Alberta Rose. We have a great show for you. This hour we are going to be talking about that truism that they say that the devil is in the details. We have a bunch of guests who are gonna approach that subject sort of from some different angles. Um, We're thinking about that right now because as we record this episode of Livewire here in the Alberta Rose Theater, we are mere hours away from the end of daylight saving time when we change the clocks. And if there's one detail that people really like to tell you about, it's that the clocks are going to change. It's like the number one detail that people like to clarify with other people (laughs) twice a year. (laughs) To the point where the hotel slipped this note under my door today to tell me that the clocks were gonna change in the middle of the night tonight. I'm gonna read it to you, dear guest, we'd like to offer a reminder that daylight saving time ends at 2 a.m. on Sunday. Please be aware that the time will fall back one hour. (laughs) Noted. (laughs) They continue though. (laughs) The alarm clock in your room will not change automatically. (laughs) But our housekeepers would be glad to change the time for you upon your request. (laughs) I would really like to see the guest who calls in that favor. (laughs) I've been staring at this clock all night. When she's done, could she help me with the toothpaste? (laughs) It's really in there. The... um, the people that most want to tell you that the clocks are about to change, though, are local TV newscasters. It's almost the only reason they have local TV news. <laughs> Tonight at 11 o'clock, they will remind everybody to fall back with the clocks. And then at 2 in the morning, there will be a little pre recorded thing that plays. And it's thoughtful, but I don't think they should be as worried about it as they are. Like, I think we're going to find out just naturally that everybody else <laughs> in the country has changed by an hour. I don't see us going like two years, one hour off from every person we meet, to the point where they're just not telling us because it's awkward and we're confused all the time. I feel like this will sort of fix itself at some point. You may know this. Benjamin Franklin is the person in America who was behind the idea of Daylight Saving Time. And the, the whole idea of Daylight Saving Time was that if we can agree to shift the clocks in the summertime, we can... Uh, make it so that we're awake when the natural light is occurring and we save electricity. That's the uh, argument for daylight saving time. The argument against it is that when it's time to fall back, like it is now, and you're in the Northwest, you enter a four-month period where it gets dark at one in the afternoon. (laughs) Which is very early for that to happen. It is... A rough few months for us here Now that we are going to be falling back This is a little detail I uncovered today The Gollum character in Lord of the Rings That was based on a photograph J.R.R. Tolkien saw Of somebody in the Northwest Trying to get through the winter (laughs) That's not a real thing I made that up But it sounds like it could be true, right? I I had to clarify Because I don't want any wizards Mad at me online Um, I've been down that road before We try to do all this stuff in the Northwest to get through the darkness of the winter. People get those light boxes, put those at their desk at work. Or some people like me use nature's light box, which is whiskey. Um, (laughs) It also helps a little bit. I, I may have mentioned this last year, but every time we get to this point in the year, I can't help but be reminded of this story where this really wealthy woman was talking to me and we were talking about the dark winters in the Northwest. And she said to me, with total sincerity, and also with just that kind of innocence that only a very rich person has. She says, Luke, my husband and I figured out how to beat the winter blues. We discovered Hawaii, where they had bought a pineapple plantation and would just go for five months out of the year. So this is the message of hope that I'm bringing to you, is that if you're feeling down this winter as it gets dark, there is a surefire remedy, and that is to find and punch a rich person who tells you that they discovered Hawaii. So I feel like we have a plan going forward. All right. Your first guest on this edition of Live Wire. uh, You may know him from his band Grand Hallway. Seattle singer-songwriter Tomo Nakayama has made lush Chamber pop that's inspired comparisons to Andrew Bird, Sigaros, even Nina Simone. Last year, Tomo made his acting debut in the Lynn Shelton film Touchy Feely. The New York Times called his performance the film's most compelling moment, which is not too shabby for your first film appearance. Critics described my debut in the film Mannequin 2 on the Move as quote regrettable. <laughs> anyway, Tomo is here to play some music for us. His newest record is Fog on the Lens. Please welcome Tomo Nakayama to Live Wire. Uh, what song are we going to hear?
4: Uh, well, this is kind of amazing because um, uh, it's called Darkest of Seasons. <laughs> <laughs> we I, uh... plan all this stuff out long in advance. <laughs> How did this song come about? Uh, well, so it's kind of exactly about what you're talking about. Um, it's about the season between, um, I call it, uh, yeah, October through uh, April, pretty much, <laughs> is the uh, darkest of seasons. and um, yeah, This is shaping we... up to be a bleak show. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, How do you, by funny. the way, I mean, you live in Seattle. How yes. do you... How do you get through the, the, the long, kind of gloomy winter? Does, uh, does just, music help you? I mean, I listen to your music, and I have to say, it's so lush, it, it, it warms my heart, but does it have the same impact on you, being the
4: person who makes it? Uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty much an act of desperation. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's all that keeps me going sometimes. Especially, like, the last month uh, or two is, it gets real, gets real dark, and, uh, yeah, just literally, like,
0: Well, let's hope that this song is a little early remedy for this. This is Toma Nakayama on Livewire.
5: It's the darkest of seasons when we only have There's a light at the end of the grave, Cause you know it is true what they say. It's the darkest of seasons before we have made, though it's hard to remember, there's a light at the end of the grave. Though it's hard to remember, there's a light at the end.
0: Tomo Nakayama, right here on LiveWire. You're listening to LiveWire from PRI, Public Radio International, recorded in Portland, Oregon, the only city where business casual basically means Amish lumberjack. We will be right back. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Ergo Depot, who asked the question, Have you heard of active sitting? We know it sounds like an oxymoron, but if you can find yourself the right task chair for work, you can actually improve your core strength and burn calories while creating a stunning PNL spreadsheet or just watching a video of a hamster stuffed 20 peanuts in its weird mouth pouch parts. Visit ErgoDepot.com to find your way to work healthy. Welcome back to Live Wire from PRI, Public Radio International. We're talking this week about how the devil is in the details, and our next guest knows firsthand about how important small details are. This is because she lives in a house that is 84 square feet In size. After a heart attack had her reevaluating her life, Dee Williams realized her friends and family deserved more of her time than her four bedroom house did, and so she simplified things by building herself a tiny house to live in, all of which is detailed in her engaging memoir, The Big Tiny. Here to talk about it, please welcome Dee Williams to Livewire. So, for people that uh, have a hard time imagining square footage, what's something else that's 84 square feet that they might know about?
3: Oh, geez. The next time you guys are at the grocery store and you see uh, a roll of two ply toilet paper, if you were to stretch that out on the floor, it's a little larger than my house.
0: <laughs> they frown on that, by the way, at the grocery I store. Don't... Even if you're trying to conceptualize someone's tiny house.
3: And I, and I don't like to compare my house to toilet paper. So maybe a tool shed.
0: So that's about the size. It may be like a standard tool shed somebody has in their yeah. backyard.
3: Yeah. I actually masked out the, the floor plan of my house on an 8 by 10 area rug. And, and so that was a good comparison.
0: Well, take me back to that time in your life because you were living in um, a sort of regular size house here in Portland what, what changed your mind?
3: Well, uh, one thing was I had taken a trip to Guatemala. How many of you have had one of those trips where you, you know, have this transformation that happens by seeing the real world? So that was one thing. And then the other was uh, having a heart attack and wake, waking up three days later in the ICU. And all of a sudden, my big house and all the time it was taking to clean it uh, and repair it didn't make sense.
0: What was the medical diagnosis of, of what was going on with you?
3: I was diagnosed with congestive heart failure. And um, if, you're, if you're not familiar with what congestive heart failure does, your, your heart gets more rigid and it gets puffier. And uh, your lungs fill with fluid. It's, it's pretty bad. And they gave me one to five years with my heart. So um, the cool thing was all of that changed. Uh, I'm doing really well with my ticker. Yay! <laughs>
0: I feel like I'm nervous about how much you just celebrated. Like I yeah. want you to just stay very still on stage, Dee. <laughs> uh, nothing boom, boom, too boom, boom, exciting, please, here on this episode yeah. of Livewire. Um, so, so, how did your brain start to make this connection between? Wanting your life to be different and, and having that be about living in a really, really small space.
3: Well, it's, it's not very exciting. I was in, in the doctor's office. And you know how when you're in the doctor's office, you, you never make eye contact with anyone. So all of a sudden, you become really engrossed with whatever the silly magazines are that are on the coffee table there. Like
0: a cat fancy from 1988. Yes. You're just riveted.
3: Yes. Uh, so So I was flipping through this magazine... And I saw a picture of a tiny house, a little tiny house uh, about 100 square feet on wheels. And it, it didn't look like an RV, it looked like a cabin. And all of a sudden it was just like, God, if, if I could get rid of my mortgage, if I could get rid of my utility bills, if I could get rid of the you know, hours that I spent vacuuming my house on Sunday, I don't know why Sunday, a day of the Lord, ends up being the vacuum day, but... It does. And so all of a sudden something something just made sense. And it was like if I could just downsize into a manageable space that you could vacuum with a dust buster, you know, uh, somehow that would make things simple enough to
0: understand. But did you know how to build a house, even a tiny one?
3: I had I had uh, done some remodeling on my house, and I had uh, one time I I cut a hole in a house to put a a cat door in.
0: Oh well, you sound prepared. Yeah. It's, you know, it's most of building a house is cutting a hole in a different house. So, I was ready. Yeah. How did it go? Actually, I mean the the process. I also, by the way, saw you in a documentary about the tiny house movement, and that particular film followed. Really, how much work really goes into building a tiny house. Just because it's small doesn't mean it's not complicated. H- how did the process sort of work for you of the making of the house?
3: There were mistakes. <laughs> there were a lot of mistakes. You but nailed
0: the cat door, though. I mean, that yeah, was... Yeah,
3: that was important for perfect me. Perfect. Yeah, that was my one. gateway. If you're thinking about building a tiny house, try a cat door first. But, um, you know, I, mistakes were made. And uh, the cool thing is that since I was building it myself, I was my own critic. And um, I had a lot of really great books. I had a lot of awesome friends, some of whom were carpenters. A lot of them just drank beer and watched me <laughs> fail. Um, but, but That's the cool-
0: supervisory yeah. carpentry.
3: Yes. Yeah. My, my house cost $10,000 to build. But there was another, like, probably $5,000 in beer and pizza for my friends.
0: So you get the thing constructed, and then where'd you put it?
3: I ended up in my friend's backyard. So I found myself, um, while I was building, I wasn't sure where I was going to end up. Um, But I wanted to be in Olympia, and I wanted to be with people that could take care of me as my health continued to get bad. And so, I, you know, I had a list of some friends, and I'd go over to dinner, and I'd just kind of check out the backyard while I was there. <laughs> you know, take a moment to check things out. And ultimately, I had a short list of four or five, you know, friends that I thought could, could be my supporters. And ultimately, I end up in my friend's, uh, Hugh and Annie, in their kid's backyard. And it's ended up, I've been there ten years, I I built a house on wheels so that I could uh, you know go see my parents and hang out with them for a while. So I could go to the desert. So I could go to the coast. So I could absorb this planet that we're on that is so magnificent. And I haven't really moved much.
0: <laughs> this is Livewire Radio. We're talking to Dee Williams. Her book is The Big Tiny about the eighty-four square foot house that she's been living in. Um, I I understand that that you had a a dog, a big, huge dog, the exact wrong kind of dog to have in an 84-square-foot house. How did that whole situation work?
3: Well, she was old and pliable. So uh, it actually worked out quite well. Every night I would carry her up a 7-foot ladder to the loft to go to bed with me.
0: That's what doctors recommend for a heart condition. (laughs) I don't know if people know that.
3: I I never checked in with my cardiologist on the building process or or this new shenanigan. But um, it worked out quite well. She weighed 60 pounds when we moved into the house. She weighed about 70 when she passed away last year. The the thing is, there was a ratio. So, So the strength to dog weight was pretty high or low, I'm not sure which, when we moved in. And then over time, I got weaker and she got fatter. And uh, it got harder, but uh, it worked out quite well.
0: No worries. It, it would appear that part of this story is, is the house itself, and then part of the story is the community that grew up around the house. I mean, you've said that it's a, it really reframes things when you have to ask somebody for water every day. Mm-hmm. You're really reliant on the people whose house you're living behind, right?
3: Yeah. I mean, uh, one of the things, I didn't really plan on that. I didn't plan on developing a relationship. So Hugh and Annie lived in one house, and Hugh's Aunt Rita, who was 80 when I moved into the backyard, she lived next door. And I was actually kind of a little closer to her, proximity-wise. And I didn't have that relationship, but over time it developed. I became the person that could help her get into bed at night. I became the person that would, like, she was in a wheelchair, and, like, one day she screamed, and I heard her. I ran into the, her house, and she had somehow gotten the front wheels of her wheelchair caught in the vegetable crisper of her refrigerator. That's that's not a normal thing. And, that is uh, classic Rita. Yeah, so much like her. She was, she was ex-CIA, and she was a... And so somehow she knew, like, you know, I'd go over to a house and and she'd say, I saw uh, an extra large pair of shoes sitting on the porch this morning. What what was going on over there? And I'm like in my 40s and I'm like, nothing. (laughs) Nothing. There was nothing going on, Rita.
0: Don't make me come over and do a wheelie on your refrigerator. (laughs) I want to I ask you about the, the relationship aspect of this whole thing, though, because I, I understand that you were engaged for a period of time, and that part of the, the complication in, in terms of this part of your life was that, you know, maybe this isn't the right size house for two people to live in, and then you're trying to decide between your house or your love life. That's a really bad position to be in.
3: I'm just saying it it's
0: just fine. Not totally sure how to take that answer.
3: I'm just saying it all works out. It
0: all works out.
3: It all works out.
0: Do you think you're going to live in this thing for the rest of your days?
3: Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think if I, if I did get partnered and, uh, you know, there would be absolutely no way I could live in an 84-square-foot house with, with somebody. Um, I just know myself that well, and a pair of pants can be a tripping hazard. So uh, I, would, I would probably, there, a change would have to happen.
0: And, and that wouldn't be for you somehow giving up on the tiny house movement. I mean, is your opinion that we should all be trying to live in smaller places, smaller residences?
3: No, my opinion is that we should all fall in love with where we live. My opinion is that we should fall in love with the people we live with, whether they're uh, in the same house or our next door neighbor. And we've, we've forgotten how amazing our communities are. So that's, that's what I have discovered living in my little tiny house, is that I'm gifted by my friends and by the lady I didn't even know when I moved into the backyard.
0: Wow. That's powerful stuff. Dee Williams, thank you so much for coming on LiveWire. <laughs> Dee Williams' book is The Big Tiny. Tonight's show brought to you in part by Laughing Planet Cafe, serving locally sourced burritos and bowls filled with whole foods because eating out doesn't always have to lead to apoigs, or you may know it as acute post-overindulgent guilt syndrome. You can avoid that by going to their website, laughingplanetcafe.com. Hey, if you're planning on being in Portland on November 15th, check out our live show. We're going to have the hilarious Megan Amran here. She writes for the show Parks and Recreation and has a new book out. Hari Kondabalu will be here, also a funny comedian. Musical guest Deep Sea Diver and a bunch of other awesome folks that we're really excited about. More information about that is at LiveWireRadio.org.
6: Hello, I am Lucifer, a.k.a. Beelzebub, the father of lies, etc., etc., etc. And I'm here to clear the air about a few things. A lot has been said about me, and most of it is just not true, not by a long shot. Now, when I make a boo-boo, I own up to it, like styrofoam. That was me. I thought, hey, this is a great way to transport foods and so on, but it turns out kind of bad for the environment. So I've done some things, but that doesn't mean you can pile stuff on me that I had nothing to do with, okay? Take your expressions like, the devil made me do it. I don't make people do things, okay? I don't. Every time you buy an ugly sweater or eat a bag of fudge, you blame me, and it's ridiculous, okay? No one is making you fat and unfashionably dressed except for you, okay? Ever hear the one about going to the crossroads and selling your soul? To me, lots of people have done it, right? Wrong. Exactly. One guy did it, and it was because he didn't have any money, and it was in the middle of giving him guitar lessons, and we weren't at a crossroads. We were at a cul-de-sac. Now, I was admittedly a little drunk, so I took the soul. Now everyone thinks I'm trading guitar lessons for souls. Who does that? Mostly though, I've been misrepresented in music. For example, I've never been down to Georgia for any reason whatsoever, (laughs) and I hate fiddle fights. Sorry, ACDC, there is no highway to hell. It's more of a limited access frontage road. Riding with the devil? I would never hang out with David Lee Roth. He's, he's kind of grotesque. And sympathy for the devil, just chalk full of lies. Keith Richards should know better. I've known him since God was a boy, literally. All right, so I feel like I've made my point. I need to cool off now. I'm going to go do some 30-minute abs and have a smoothie. Hopefully, moving forward, you'll recognize that words have power and abusive language towards people or princes of darkness can hurt feelings. It's me, the devil, Lucifer, signing off.
5: Please allow me to induce myself. I'm a
6: of wealth and taste. Oh, come on! Oh, sorry.
0: That's Andrew Harris here on Live Wire Radio. Live Wire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, working with their seafood buyers, suppliers, and the industry as a whole toward healthier oceans, because the ocean can't just show up at the gym. That would be awkward, and the treadmills are moist enough as it is. <laughs> really sorry we put that image in your head. More information can be found about Whole Foods' seafood rating program at Eat as Promised. We're talking about life's little details this week on LiveWire, and our next guest is pretty detail-oriented when it comes to eating, which is why his new book features this kind of wisdom, quote, The advantage to slicing salad components flat is that they help create a scoop mechanism that cradles less forkable ingredients in its bosom. Dan Pashman hosts the podcast The Sporkful, which he describes as being for eaters, not foodies. His new book is Eat More Better, How to Make Every Bite More Delicious. Please welcome my pal Dan Pashman to Live Wire. All right, Dan, we have known each other for a good while, and I think the the moment that I knew you were different than just about anybody I'd ever met when it came to eating was when we were living in New York and you went on like a 45-minute discourse about the sausages that you were going to bring to a tailgating party and was it how long you were going to leave them in the bag? There was some bizarre step that was like vital to this whole thing.
2: Yeah, uh, as I recall, I was parboiling the sausages and beer beforehand and then I was going to grill them in the parking lot to finish them. Right. I mean, that's pretty obvious, Luke. Yeah. Um, and right. It, I mean, it, you got to you want to boil them for a certain amount of time, but not too long. And, and because I was going to leave them in the same water in which they were boiled, they would theoretically continue to cook, but you don't want them to be overcooked and dry out. It's a big issue.
0: And, and you would, like, every day have these conversations with other people who were getting lunch from, like, where the lunch was going to come from. You had a theory on everything. Has this always been your life? Like, when you were a little kid, were you doing science experiments on the cereal to maximize the crunchiness?
2: Crunch, yeah. Um, I mean, I've always been pretty obsessive uh, about the details of all different kinds of things and uh, eating especially. I've always loved to eat. And so, I mean, that's what a lot of my book and about the work is about. It's just sort of like the, the, the minutiae of eating. And it's not so much about restaurants or recipes or high-end anything or cooking even. It's just more about, like, looking at the most mundane eating questions in ridiculous detail and trying to uncover new information about them. Like, you know, how long that sausage should sit in that water.
0: Well, let me ask you about satvor.
2: Mm, yes. How much time you got? All
0: night. All night. <laughs> <laughs> Not really.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> what is, you're obsessed in your book with and on your podcast with Satvor.
2: Yeah, Satvor is short for surface area to volume ratio. I'm sure that many of you guys remember biology class. Surface area to volume ratio It's a crucial concept in nature, Luke, and a crucial concept in eating. And it is the ratio between the surface area of any food or object or anything, uh, the area exposed to the air, and the total volume of it. And this ratio governs so much of our eating experiences. And by just understanding how it applies to the eating experience, you can make so much of what you eat more delicious.
0: Give me an example of Satvor strategy in action. All
2: right. Well, I mean, first first of all, there's a real quick one. Fried chicken. If you're looking at two pieces of fried chicken, you want to pick the piece that has a high satvor, more surface area. You want one that has a coastline, you know, like, like the coast of Maine, like, like um, with crags and crevices and inlets. You don't want just a flat because there's going to be more crunch. It's more exterior that has been exposed to the boiling oils of the later Same thing with ice cubes. Satvor are huge in ice cubes. Yeah, you, you spend a lot of time thinking about ice cubes. You don't? Almost
0: no time in my life is spent. <laughs> Here's what I think about ice cubes. I open the freezer and I realize somebody put this back in with no water in it. <laughs> and that somebody was me. Yeah.
2: <laughs> what, yeah what's, t- tell me about, because you have a lot of theories on ice. Well, the, the surface area to volume ratio of ice cubes governs how quickly they'll melt. Okay. And so if you have a lot of surface area in relation to volume, like you guys know those ice cubes that have the cylinder poked through the middle of them? those melt very quickly because they have that extra surface area through the middle. Most of the time, you don't want your ice to melt that quickly. In fact, there's a movement in some of the sort of trendier hipster bars around the country you guys may see where they just give you a drink that's got one huge ice cube. Uh, or It's like a Rubik's Cube yeah. of ice. Now, technically speaking, the lowest satvor is the sphere. Uh So that will be the slowest melting. But I find that when you tilt the glass back... and It's like a
0: frozen tennis ball hits you in the teeth.
2: That's right. And it it hits your nose, too. So I think that the the single giant cube is the best combination of satvor and face compatibility.
0: I mean, when you say it like that, it just makes sense. (laughs) Let's go through some of the commonly consumed things that you feel like... People are maybe not doing right, or at least you are offering uh, superior options in your book. Let's talk cheese on cheeseburgers.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, uh,
0: <laughs> you, you, you pause like you were a, a, a 20-year-old guy about to tell his parents he was gay. Yeah. That was a pause like, this is good. Everybody's sitting down. This yeah. is serious. Yeah. This yeah. is a big deal. <laughs> You're putting the cheese on the wrong part of the cheeseburger. right.
2: So, I talk a lot in my book about what I call the proximity effect, which is the idea that when you put any bite of food into your mouth, whatever part of that bite is in closest proximity to your tongue will be accentuated, okay? So, for instance, um, when you fork the bites of a salad, you want to fork in ascending order of priority. So, whatever component of the salad you want to taste the most... You guys don't already do this? (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> Dan was, by the way, a surprisingly effective radio producer considering <laughs> most of his time was spent yeah. prioritizing his forking.
2: Yeah, yeah. So you want to fork in ascending order of priority so that the part you want to taste the most ends up on the tip of the fork and goes onto your tongue directly. In the case of the cheeseburger, I find that if you have a nice, thick, juicy cheeseburger, the cheese on the top in the traditional way, the cheese gets lost. Put the cheese on the bottom of your cheeseburger. It moves the cheese closer to your tongue, and that accentuates cheesy goodness. You learned something right here on
0: Livewire. Speaking of which, by the way, this is Livewire Radio. We're talking to Dan Pashman. He's the guy behind the Sportful podcast. He's got a new book out, too, called Eat More Better. And this is actually perfect timing. How about I hold the guacamole, Dan, and you can explain... The way that people should be dipping tortilla chips more effectively, because this has been, I think, up there with Ebola in terms of national crises. Yeah. Most of the people listening would agree. Well,
2: let me tell you, this tortilla chip demonstration is going to certainly affect more people.
0: Yeah.
2: Ooh. <laughs> That's some news commentary. I like that. <laughs> Coming from Dan Fashion. Oh, really? Yeah, that one gets. I got a rim shot. Luke that didn't. one gets the rim shot. Great. <laughs> Uh, why don't I hold the guacamole, okay. Luke, and why don't I put you on the spot here? Why don't you okay. pick a triangular tortilla chip, and let's go ahead and critique Luke's technique.
0: Okay, I'm going to pick just a regular tortilla
2: chip. Okay, we got, now, now, right away, Luke's already... Now, one of the things I talk a lot about is, like, there's some issues of objective truth that I will, I will say, this is the right way, this is the wrong way. There's other times where I will say, it depends on your taste. Do it how you like, but understand the factors at play so you can make an informed decision. Okay. <laughs> This is one of those cases. So, when you have a triangular tortilla chip, okay. there's two basic ways to grab the chip.
0: So I gra- I've already failed at this. I grabbed no, the chip wrong?
2: No, you're, you're okay. Well, you're,
0: I am holding. Let me explain for you're the radio audience. Yeah,
2: Go ahead and explain. For the radio <laughs> audience,
0: I'm holding the tortilla chip, I think, the way anybody would. I'm sort of holding a corner. You're holding by one point and dipping two points. Yeah.
2: Right. That was my plan. That's fine. <laughs> no, that's not wrong. But The other option is you could hold by a straight edge and dip one point.
0: Okay, I'm turning okay. it around.
2: Wait, I, I, again, this, this is not a matter of right or wrong in this particular case, Luke, but you've got to know the factors at play. Because when you, when you hold one point and dip two points, you have a wider area with which to accumulate dip, but a higher chance for breakage.
0: Okay. <laughs> can I...
2: Go, go, can give I, it a shot. Can I, I have it, some
0: guacamole now? <laughs> I'm really hungry, actually, all right? Yeah. Uh, I dipped. How was the dip? I dipped it in there. It didn't break. I'm holding it
2: by one edge. And that was nice. It, it was nice the way you you dragged across the top instead of plunging deep in. Okay. Because when you plunge deep into a thick dip and then you got to fork back out, you're putting more strain on the chip. Okay. You've had on. You had an engineer on the sporkful,
0: right, to talk about this exact kind of pressure situation.
2: I interviewed a structural engineer, yes, on this very topic, and. Uh, I talked to him about the scoop chip, actually. Okay. You know, the scoop chip, um, which is like a, it's a nice innovation, although I find that when you eat it, you know, right side up, the, the vertical walls of the chip tend to cut the roof of your mouth, which is a condition I've identified as Captain Crunch's complaint. Um, yeah, these are, the, um, these are the, the chips that are popular now that are kind of like a little mini bowl or something. Right. And so... Um, So they're okay, but this engineer was saying that one of the strongest shapes in engineering is a dome. And I was thinking about the scoop, and he's saying, the dome, scoop, dome. And suddenly it hit me. What is a scoop, Luke, but an upside-down dome? So what you do is you take a scoop chip, and you put it on your fingertip like a thimble. And you can run this thing through cream cheese. (laughs) And it will not break. It will not break. Okay. Okay. I have, to, I have to ask you, Dan. Please.
0: Is it exhausting to go through life this way? And, and the reason I ask is because for most of us, if you, if you get a bad bagel, your day pretty much goes on, but that could be life-shattering for you.
2: It's, it's a burden. It's a burden. Um, but it's also a lifestyle that uh, brings with it tremendous riches, I think. You know, as I say in the book, you know, I really sort of try to, um, try to get people fired up about the pursuit of what I call perfect deliciousness, which is a platonic ideal, you know, that we all need to be striving for as eaters. And, you know, you may not get there, but, you know, the journey is the reward. And sometimes it can be a lonely path. <laughs> but it's the path I've chosen, and I find that it's very rewarding You know, and and I invite you to come come with me, Luke. One of the uh, things
0: that you cover in your book, Dan, is the ethics of cherry picking from a bowl of snack mix.
2: Oh yeah. (laughs) There's actually a Socratic dialogue on that subject. (laughs) And and in brief, where, where how does it end? Socrates wins.
0: Refresh me on how Socratic dialogue works. (laughs) Well,
2: uh, uh, Socrates is arguing, there's Nietzsche and and, uh, Aristotle comes in, Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau come in, and they say... (laughs) They say that it's a social... When you eat from a snack mix, there's a social contract, that you are agreeing to not cherry-pick ingredients in order to be able to partake in the bounty of the mix. Aristotle says it's up to chance. Kant says that equal access to all components is a categorical imperative. But Nietzsche says that you know, such concerns are for the weak, and it's the true manifestation of the will to power to be able to take whatever components of the snack mix you wish. And in the end, Socrates wins by basically presenting his theory of snack mix forms, which is that... When you eat from a snack mix, it's not a discrete moment in time, but rather you are partaking from the great snack mix in the sky, which is like a a great trough running throughout time. And so this
0: is starting to feel like true detective.
2: (laughs) All right, hold. Was that longer than you wanted? (laughs) No, it was
0: um, just right. Okay. I wanted, but but I wanted to ask you some other sort of food. Ethics question. So we prepared this little food ethics quiz for you, oh, Dan Passman. Are you these. ready to ready. help us? You think yeah. about this stuff a lot. Okay, your friend is in the restroom when uh, their burger and fries arrive. You ordered a salad, and therefore you steal five or six fries from their plate before they return. Are you required to disclose that you took the fries, even though they will never know?
2: I don't think you're required. I mean, you know, most burgers come with a pretty hefty portion of fries. Mm-hmm. I also Too think many that, fries, really, if you think about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, really, you're doing your friend a favor. Yeah. So I don't think you're required. It would probably be nice. But I really have to ask, I have to question your underlying assumptions here, Luke. Why did you order a salad if you really wanted fries?
0: It was a moment of weakness. <laughs> All right, question number two. Your sister-in-law is a strict vegetarian and can't stop raving about your potato salad. Uh. You cook the potatoes in chicken broth. <laughs> Do you tell her? Follow-up question. Should you enjoy telling her? That's just a little extra for me.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, um, I deal with this a bit, actually, in my own, in my own life, because I, there are members of my family who keep kosher. Um, and I think that if it's based on some sort of, like, if the person has a note from a doctor, and you've seen it, and you've called back the doctor's office to verify yeah. it, and you're sure there's a diagnosed medical condition, then that's fine. But um, I think most of the time, what people don't know won't hurt them.
0: I dated somebody, uh, and for four years, I thought that she had a deathly allergy to onions. They couldn't even have touched the knife that also prepared the other food. And then one day she just said, oh, I just don't like how it tastes.
2: (laughs) And the relationship ended shortly thereafter. (laughs) But by saying she was allergic, she got you to keep onions out of the food. And, and every restaurant from
0: here to Kalamazoo. So, last question, uh, Dan Pashman, uh, from the food ethics department. Uh, your boss has a massive peanut allergy. Is it okay to sneak a little peanut butter into his morning smoothie to send him a message that he should keep his mouth shut about your embezzling from the company?
2: <laughs> like, a, like a warning shot? This is like yeah. a, a, a peanut butter warning shot yeah. across the bow? Um I'd probably say no. <laughs> I don't think you should try to risk your boss's life necessarily, but if you're the kind of person that's already embezzling from the company, I mean, why stop there? Yeah. <laughs> Dan Pashman ladies and gentlemen.
0: Well, that music can only mean one thing. We're at the end of this hour, and what an
1: hour it's been, Jason Rouse. This is a big hour, you guys. I listened to almost all of it. It was great. You learn anything? I did. Well, just Dan Pashman just um, blew my mind because I've been doing so many things right, food-wise, for so many years, including the cheese on the bottom of the cheeseburger. And to my father who is listening, I've been right for years, Dad. You've been doing it wrong. The ice cube, however, uh, I don't think I understand that.
0: The giant ice cube. You don't understand why why restaurants and bars would do that? No, I just I don't I think a square, a giant square would also hit me in the face. Yeah. Any any ice clump is probably a bad idea. Yeah. Ralph Huntley, you've been here for most of the show. What'd you would you make of it? A lot of interesting things came out tonight uh, I think the one that probably affected me most Most deeply Is, is um, to remember to set my clock back Yeah that's Because I one. completely forgot about yeah. that That's yeah. no joke I know somebody who will help you with that I think that I I have decided that I'm moving into a tiny house Possibly with D. Williams And we're never dipping our chips The way we used to Ever again Well, thank you, everybody, for helping us out this hour. One more time for Tomo Nakayama. i mm-hmm. Tomo Nakayama right here on Livewire and that is our show thank you so much Our thanks to our guests Dan Pashman D Williams and Tomo Nakayama This show was made possible in part by our sponsors New Belgium Brewing Company Whole Foods Market Ergo Depot and Laughing Planet Cafe Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of LiveWire. Courtney Haumeister is head writer and producer. Jim Brunberg is producer and member of our house band, along with Jonathan Newsom and our musical director, Mr. Ralph Huntley. Jason Rouse is associate producer and part of our writing team, along with Alex Falcone and guest writer Caitlin Kunkel. Our performers are Sean McGrath and Andrew Harris. Graham Nystrom is our technical director. House sound by Neil Blake. Stage management by Jillian Tabler. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, Meyer Memorial Trust, the Oregon Arts Commission, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, the Oregon Cultural Trust, Work for Art, the Oregon Community Foundation, and listeners like you, fine, fine people. For more information about our show and how to become a member of LiveWire, visit LiveWireRadio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank. We'll see you next week.